0: Oh, this is Pod Academy. We used to collect wood to burn to keep us warm and cook our food. We had candles for light and then we started using coal and then oil, electricity and then natural gas. And each of these shifts was very complex. Just imagine, for example, the upheaval involved in, in the shift to electricity. So what can those transitions teach us about a future move to new green energy? This podcast, presented by Chaitanya Kumar, was first aired on an exciting new podcast platform of conversations on the future of energy and climate called The Shift. Enjoy.
1: Now we've got to accelerate the transition away from old, dirtier energy sources. Rather than subsidize the past, we should invest in the future, especially in communities
0: that rely on fossil fuels. We do them no favor when we don't show them where the trends are going. And that's why I'm going to push to change the way we
1: manage our oil and coal resources, so that they better reflect the cost they impose on taxpayers
0: and our planet. And that way, we put money back into those communities and put tens of thousands of Americans to work, building a 21st-century transportation system. That was U.S. President Barack Obama speaking at his final State of the Union address in Washington, D.C. Energy transition from fossil fuels to clean, renewable energy now seems inevitable. But somehow, this transition globally is still largely rhetoric. Why is energy transition so slow? And with the impacts of climate change increasing in intensity and frequency... Will this transition happen at the pace we need it? And will we stave off the worst for our next generation? On this podcast today, we have Roger Fouquet, a man who has looked at the question of energy transition more closely than most. Roger works as an associate professorial research fellow at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and Environment at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's written a few books and numerous articles focusing on historic energy transitions, with a keen eye on the economics behind it. So I'll cut to the chase here and get to my first question, to Roger. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, Roger. Um, we know you've done a fair amount of research on the history of energy transitions. Um, Could you speak a little bit about the key patterns that you've seen emerge from your study of um, historical energy transitions?
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, I would say that an important feature of historical energy transitions is that when we look at the big picture, we see a single energy transition from, say, biomass to coal, from coal to Oil, oil to natural gas, for instance. But really, underlying that is a real disaggregation of a number of sectors and a number of services. And in each one of those services, such as heating, power, transportation and lighting, and in each sector, such as the industrial sector, transportation sector, households, buildings such as public administration buildings, agriculture, each one of those needs to make a transition of its own. And so the technologies that need to be undertaken to be uh, used to make that transition potentially differs from each service in each sector. So there's so many different uh, sectors and services that what you find is there's a very slow Aggregated transition. So that's the first point that I think is important for for understanding the future: is that it will be very slow. The other point I would make about the nature of energy transitions is often when you have a technology or a, a, an energy source that's going to that's potentially going to come in and become the new the new dominant energy source in technology. It starts initially as a niche product, shall I say. And that's because there's a small group of consumers that are willing to pay an additional amount for certain characteristics associated with the energy services in particular. A premium of sorts. Yeah. Yes, they're willing to pay a premium yeah. for that. So... That's an important feature, so that there's a small group of consumers that are interested. And gradually, as more of those consumers come into that niche market, economies of scale can lead to improving the the capabilities of that technology and driving down the cost of that technology. And that slowly makes that product uh, competitive with the incumbent energy technology and energy source. So that's an important feature, and that it, that technology doesn't always manage to um, drop down low enough. For instance, kerosene uh, was used for lighting in the late 1800s, and was used particularly by the poor population that couldn't afford gas lighting. But it never dropped cheap enough, at least in the United Kingdom, in a few other countries such as Canada and rural areas, um, it, was, it was the dominant source. But in urban areas, it couldn't compete in terms of the, the price of lighting that it, it provided with um, the incumbent at that time, which was gas lighting. So what we see is that sometimes that niche market turns into... A competitive energy technology and becomes uh, and and, th- and then is managing to push out the initial incumbent
0: technology and energy source. Yeah. So if if, if I can interject, um, yeah, sure. When you spoke of the transition between uh, the gas and kerosene, could you sort of zoom in and tell me what exactly happened there? Um, at what point did the price factor suddenly you know shift from one direction to another? Oh, okay. and uh, I'm, I'm trying to sort of tease out paddles to uh, the era that we are living in right now and see where is that trigger uh, going to happen? When is it going to happen? And can we actually accelerate to reach that trigger point? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, one of the interesting things is that uh, first people used candles, yeah. tallow candles in particular, for lighting. And then in the early 1800s, gas lighting came in. But it involved the setting up of an infrastructure of pipes, yeah. and so only the, the wealthier at first and then the middle class population were able to adopt uh, that, that energy source and those technologies and that infrastructure, shall I say. So for a while, the poor population was still using tallow candles. And then in the second half, in the, I'd say, the 1860s in particular, uh, kerosene, which was a derivative of oil and petroleum, uh, was able to uh, compete and was much cheaper than uh, tallow candles in terms of the the light that was generated. So for a while, there were really two uh, energy sources that were providing the lighting the gas lighting for the wealthy in the middle class and then the oil for the poor populations and still a little bit of tallow candles. Then, as electricity came in and became a competitor of for gas lighting, at that point, a lot of the gas companies became uh, a little bit more competitive, yeah. they, they were a bit too relaxed for a while, and so they started to seek lo- um, a bigger share of the market, and they found ways of capturing that poor population by, um, by providing them with the piping service and asking and, and creating prepayment meters. so they basically would put money in, in, in slots and get the lighting and the gas yeah. So basically, the companies invested up front and then charged actually a higher rate than they charged sort of the middle class and the, and the wealthier population who had paid for their, their gas piping installation themselves. So, so yeah, so that was a process from the, the 1860s where kerosene came in to the 1890s where the sort of the gas piping was introduced into poorer homes. And so then gas became the dominant source while electricity was trying to, trying to come in. And probably for about 30 or 40 years, electricity tried to come into the market but couldn't yeah. because gas was being becoming more efficient in terms of the lighting it was providing. And it, had, it was the incumbent and it had the, the infrastructure and the setup. So basically electricity then had to put in a huge amount of investment up front to to compete in terms of the infrastructure set up to compete with um, gas lighting. And then eventually in the 1930s, it did manage to make the break as electricity and power stages became more efficient and the electricity network became more integrated and cheaper.
0: Yeah. So what was the supporting framework for these emerging sources of energy or technology that... Eventually reduce the price uh, to you know, lower than the incumbent energy source. Like, was it the state in in most of these cases, or was it was it uh, you know uh, industry led uh, change? How did this happen?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it very much was an industry led um, yeah. situation, which obviously is different from what we're looking at or yeah. partly anticipating today. However, it's important to remember that. The state played a role in as, a, as an observer and and took a role in, the, in, the, in a form of regulation in terms of the pricing, what was appropriate, how was appropriate to price uh, consumers. So I think there are more lessons to draw from that regulation process than to say it was government that pushed. Uh, a certain technology or a certain framework for a new yeah. energy source and technology. Yeah. it wasn't like that, but they they were involved in the regulation.
0: So so let's fast forward to the 21st century. What is the difference that you see in the transition that we are trying to achieve today towards a low carbon economy, um, and and the ones you've just described? What are the key differences? Well. I
1: would, I would argue that the major difference is that we're concerned today about environmental pollution and climate change. So really what we're interested in is having people uh, ultimately pay a premium for a public good, that is improvement in environmental quality and uh, climate stabi- stabilization. And there, the market there is a market failure. It's, it's not like in the old days when people adopted, say, um, better lighting because uh, they adopted, say, gas lighting because it was cleaner or more efficient, but because those were private benefits to the consumer. Here we're talking about something that ultimately is a benefit to society. And there's, so there's a tendency to free ride from that. Responsibility, shall I say. So there's a market failure associated with it. Markets don't signal the benefits that we're all going to get from climate stabilization. So ultimately, we're seeking, I would say, for government to to provide a form of, I would argue, regulation that would encourage and create the incentives for a valuation of... That environmental quality and that climate stabilization. So I would I would argue that in a nutshell that's that's the key difference.
0: Yeah. And I think that's that's a quite a remarkable change because is it safe to say that insofar the energy transitions that we've seen haven't necessarily been led by uh, um, a perception or of, of, of value by the consumer. Like the, the consumer is now able to decide this technology is environmentally friendly and therefore I'll choose this as opposed to the other. Uh, that choice never seemed to exist in the past, or did we just not... uh, Is this a new phenomenon that we're seeing?
1: Well, actually, it's not a new phenomenon. In fact, air pollution was a major problem in Britain, for instance, in the 19th century, and cities were heavily affected by the, the smog, the fog that was due to the coal smoke, so from burning coal, and particularly from households, industries as well, but particularly from, I would say, millions of individual households burning coal. And that caused a huge amount of health problems, and there were a number of relatively influential people that sought to uh, address these issues. And so environmental legislation was introduced from the late 1800s, into the early 1900s, there were a number of different legislations that were introduced to address air pollution problems. However, they weren't very effective. Mm. Often there, were, there was wording such as that all black smoke had to be reduced. Well, industrialists would often say, oh, yes, but it's not black smoke, it's brown smoke. Mm. And so they would get around the problem with these little, little technical issues. Yeah. Alternatively, it was very hard to enforce. Um, police would seek to intervene, but would rarely be able to bring this to uh, to courts, uh, and rarely would a judge be sympathetic to to impose a major fine. So, so these are the, the the typical processes that we would still see today, even if there was substantial legislation introduced. Is that it would be. Uh, a legal procedure to in- enforce these processes. And, and institutions like the, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA in the United States, spends a lot of effort in this process. And other ag- environment agencies around the world uh, spend a lot of time and effort trying to enforce legislation on environmental issues. Yeah. So I think that there, there's a, there is a... Uh, lessons from the past that we can observe which is that it's a very slow process to introduce environmental legislation unless there's an easy quick fix and it's cheap and 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 that's very easy such as the Montreal Protocol we saw the introduction the the, the reduction in uh, CFCs and that was very easy because there was an easy substitute at the moment we don't have an obvious and easy substitute for carbon energy sources and so that's our problem
0: yeah yeah um just sort of uh divert a little bit uh, a lot of people consider the 21st century as the age of information um how do you factor that in in energy transitions does information play a role in accelerating the transition that we see or is it going to remain a slow search for solutions
1: yeah that's a that's a good question i think I think that it can be helpful. It can make people more efficient through the smart grids, smart technology in people's homes that enables us to, to make sure that energy uses are, are managed better. So that's good. I suspect that that will only enable us to push down Energy consumption a, a, a small amount, should I say, twenty or thirty, maybe forty percent. Yeah. But uh, but it, it's it's not going to. I would feel it's not going to solve the problem. And at the same time, information has, although it's not reflected in GDP figures yet, is probably boosting the economy in a number of ways. And ultimately, when you boost the economy, that leads to greater energy consumption in. in on the whole. Yeah. So, I would argue that information can help, but I'm not sure it's going to solve the problem. Yeah. 30% of the problem. Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, you've, you've written and you've also alluded to just a few minutes ago about the eventual opposition of incumbent, uh, entrenched energy service providers to any v- transition. Uh, we are currently facing that st- scenario at the moment where the fossil fuel industry is putting up a stronger front against uh, uh, what we hope should be an eventual transition towards a low-carbon economy. Um, Again, what lessons does history offer us in terms of how do we counter that uh, um, uh, pressure from the incumbent? Yeah,
1: again, another good and important question. Undoubtedly, the fossil fuel industry is one of the most powerful industries in the world. Uh, I think of the top 10 wealthiest or largest companies in terms of revenue, six of them are oil companies, or energy companies at least. And then I think two others are um, car manufacturers who are heavily involved with the consumption of of oil. Um, So there's... There's an enormous amount of power, I think that adds up to about four or five percent. Their sales add up to about four or five percent of global GDP so they're remarkably powerful they 're remarkably influential and so the question is how can how can we um, <laughs> get them to go along on the yeah. on the ride as well shall i say um, so that that's one way of looking at it is to try and. Uh, encourage them so for the for the um, for the car manufacturers it might be about uh, encouraging them to go down a sort of electric vehicle way I, i'm not sure at the moment that electric vehicles is, is an absolute solution but it might it might ultimately be a solution uh, to at least the transport sector another way of uh, dealing with that is to offer them sweeteners such as that there's a way to sort of go with the transition. So maybe we get rid of coals, then we get rid of... So we initially deal with coal as a separate entity, and the oil and the and the, the gas don't get... There's not too much pressure on them at mm-hmm. first, and then you gradually ramp up the pressure once you've uh, addressed the coal problem. So it's almost like, I think Paul Collier was the the one that suggested sort of focusing in on one... Morally inappropriate or reprehensible (laughs) um, energy source, and and getting rid of that, and then you gradually uh, deal with the others um, separately and eventually. So, that might be one way of of dealing with it. And and in a sense, once you've dealt with coal, and the UK government said that they want to um, uh, close all uh, coal generated power stations by 2025, that's a sign that ultimately you're you're starting the process. And it's a long and slow process. So that's the first way of doing it. The second issue is if I think of major transitions in the past, I'm thinking of, for instance, slavery. And how did we deal with slavery? Well, it was ultimately a moral issue. And although it was a very slow process that took Fifty to hundred years to to abolish. Ultimately, in terms of moving from slave trade to slave ownership, um, that that took a long time. But it started as a moral, yep. moral campaign with boycotts of sugar from slave-owned um, plantations and, and and countries. There's potentially an analogy there. Similarly, maybe with the tobacco. Tobacco industry, which was addressed um, and has been dealt with through uh, legislation but partly moral legislation associated with people in bars that work in bars or people in, 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 in offices working in the offices that are victim of the smoke and so so it's a process of combining the moral, the legal, and I would also say encouraging it through economic means. So I think it has to be a multiple-pronged approach to addressing it. And ultimately, I think that shock factor is important. And if we look at an example where uh, the Clean Air Act was introduced in 1956 in the United Kingdom, it was as a result of the 1952 air pollution episode that killed, we estimate now, about 12,000 people in in London and that created a huge shock factor for uh, the population, and government had to do something. so it introduced um, the Clean Air Act in 1956, and gradually that led to a number of smokeless uh, zones where you weren't allowed to use energy sources that were polluting um, so and, and that led to the shift from coal to gas in. in homes in the United Kingdom and so that shock factor was essential to making yep. the political or the politicians push push that environmental issue to the top of the political agenda yep. and that's what you want, you want to get it to the top of the political agenda True. And, uh, and not just once but over a number of times it can't just be a single one off episode but it has to be a number of Events and incidents that push you to and keep it at the top of the political agenda. So that that I would say are the yeah. the ways, and it's not a, there's no it's not an easy
0: way. It's a number of different true, ways. True. Um, given given you've studied a uh, history of energy quite rigorously, can I tempt you to say that a lot of these are cyclical in nature? Do we do we see technology sort of emerging, realizing that we have problems, the process of trying to get rid of them? Substitute them with other technologies before time, before we realize there's another set of problems that accompanies them. Is, is it safe to say that, or, or can we break away from that cycle, if there's one in the first place?
1: I, I, think, I think in general there is a tendency to try and solve problems without looking too much at the consequences of the yeah. solution. Yeah. We're happy to find a solution and we move forward yes. with that. Yes. So... In that sense, I would agree with that. I don't know if it's always the case. Um, I would sort of argue that potentially nuclear power is an example of that, where we, we, we are stuck with the situation where we haven't... We've yes. created more problems by with the nuclear waste, um, as well as it being relatively expensive, but that we haven't solved that problem. We're still de- dealing with that problem 50 years after... introduction of of that power source so in some senses i would tend to say yes but we can't generalize whether if we sort of have wind power and solar panel panels on on all roofs is that going to be equally damaging there will inevitably be consequences to that
0: in terms of environmental problems but
1: i am unclear whether there are going to be yeah. at the same
0: level of magnitude. So essentially, you're hinting at us having to relook really how we consume, how we look at our what we need energy for, how much energy do we need? Do you are you starting to ask those questions, um, or or do we need to start asking those questions?
1: Yes, I I, I absolutely yeah. do think so. I think that uh, we do need to ask those questions. I think there's a real challenge in changing people's behaviour. Behaviour is. Per- People's habits of having warm homes and <laughs> and lots of light are, are, are challenges. But yes, absolutely. And that's something that I'm in, in doing research on at the moment. Cool. Uh,
0: my final question uh, uh, before you have to leave us is uh, if you were drafting the energy policy for the UK over a long term, uh, 30 to 50 years, what would the highlights of your policy be? Now, that's obviously a challenging
1: question. <laughs> yes. What I would say is that unless there is major new information that changes changes things, I would try to keep things fairly stable. And I think that's one of the mistakes that a lot of governments have made in a lot of certainly European countries, which I know better, and in the United States as well, uh, is to constantly be changing. Create incentives for... Renewable energy, and then to pull it back once you realise it's actually too successful and too yep. popular, yep. <laughs> and that seems to be a very uh, inadequate approach to promoting uh, energy transitions. So stability, I think, is is, is important to signal to uh, consumers and industry uh, which way we're going. So that's the important thing. I would I would work on the. The approaches that I've talked about in terms of a little bit of the, a little bit of the moral message without overstressing that, yeah. I would deal with the political issues and I would deal with the economic issues. So in terms of the economics, I would be keen to introduce some a strong a fairly strong carbon tax or potentially a, a permit on pollution. So uh, uh, and, and that we have, but to, to sort of ramp that up a little bit over time, um, as I said before, I'm not sure nuclear power is the way. They've had 50 years of heavy, heavy subsidies, and they're still expensive. They still haven't addressed the waste problem, so I'm not so convinced that nuclear, certainly in the current form, the current technology that's dominant, I'm not convinced that is the solution. So I would heavily subsidize or, or certainly subsidize solar panels and energy efficiency measures in all buildings. And So that would certainly be an important feature. Beyond that, it's, it's not easy. I would course, encourage yeah. in, improving public transport to develop a, a, a better integrated and extensive and subsidized high-speed uh, connections across... UK, across Europe,
0: which is undertaking. Certainly yes. the French are a little bit more yeah. up front. And understandably, there'll be trial and error. We uh, even have to try something mm-hmm. that'll fail. We'll <clears> have to learn from them. Um, but eventually, the vision, of course, is to try and decarbonize the economy to the fullest. Yes, I, absolutely.
1: It. I think that's an that's a very important point. But I think we have to be careful not to, to do it at all costs. Yes. And I think we need to look at... What the low carbon economy is going to look like, and is that a low carbon economy that's desirable or not? And I, and another returning to the, the nuclear issue, is that I would be concerned with the levels of waste if we were to to adopt a sort of a low carbon trajectory that was exclusively, say, nuclear power. Yep. There would be huge amounts of waste that would be uh, associated with that. But on top of that there would be um, a huge concentration of power production. And once you get excessive concentration of industrial power, you get very powerful financial and political objectives that can keep us stuck in an energy system, which I don't think is the case if we go down a more renewable energy source avenue. So that's an important thing to think about is the low carbon economy that we want. And so I don't think we need to go for low carbon at all costs. Yeah. It has to be carefully considered. But we, as you say, I do think that it's about opening up a number of opportunities yeah. and seeing which ones become the most effective and lead us down a particular pathway.
0: Yeah, Cool. On that note, I think we can, we can safely say there are a lot of uh, uh, questions in front of us, but hopefully um, we will collectively arrive at a vision that works for us and the planet together. Thank you so much, uh, Roger. It was a pleasure. So that was Roger Fouquet from the Grantham Institute speaking about energy transitions. You can read the transcript of the interview below along with a few useful links. The shift is recorded in Brighton at the University of Sussex. We bring researchers and thinkers from across UK and hopefully the world to share their latest research on issues of energy and sustainability. Always trying to find that sweet spot between being too technical or sometimes too pedestrian. Please subscribe and share the podcast with the social links that you can find on the page. Finally, please excuse a few glitches in the audio. We are working on keeping them to a minimum. Thank you for listening.